Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here this morning. It is truly an honor. I want you guys to just join me right away as we pray. Heavenly Father, truly to you we lift our eyes. We stand here, looked upon, beaming with righteousness, and it's a righteousness that is not of our own. It is that of your Son. What an extremely blessed people we are. And Father, we thank you for that, because it is Christ who is our glory. We can't boast in ourselves. And with that being said, Lord, we ask that we would get out of the way, because there's only room for one person to be elevated this morning, and that is you. So Father, draw us closer to you. That's why we are here. We want to be closer to you. We want to be who you created us to be, and we can't unless we get out of the way and allow your spirit to work through us. So we ask these things in the name of our Lord and, uh, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So good morning again. I'd like to start this morning by asking each of you guys a very serious question, a question I have to ask myself. And that is, is the way you generally live the whole of your life well-pleasing to God? Now, if you are here and you immediately answered that question in the positive, then I'm going to say that something just went seriously wrong. And what I mean by this saying is not that, that your answer is actually wrong, but that question or a question like that does not require an immediate answer, but it requires us to stop just for a moment, take a step back, reflect, and consider our ways. Our passage today is going to be the first chapter in a book of Haggai in the Old Testament. This is one of my favorites of the minor prophets. We know that we call them the major prophets and the minor prophets. The only reason why we call them a minor prophet is because the books are shorter. There's nothing minor about them. And it's truly one of my favorite of all the books. The context is the following. Haggai was a contemporary of Zechariah. They actually ministered to- together for a very similar purpose. And at this time in Jewish history, Israel was in captivity. It began first with the northern kingdom, the Assyrians took them over, and then it was followed by both of them being taken over by the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians were taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire, and that is the context. So now they're under rule of the Persians. And at this point in this book, Darius was the king. If you were to read the book of Ezra, because Ezra goes right with this, Haggai and Zechariah are at the midpoint of that book as far as timing is concerned. And a phrase comes up several times in this book that will help us and guide us through this message. And this phrase will actually also be the title of my message, and that is going to be Consider Your Ways. There is so much embedded in that statement. There's so much that to cause us to just stop and think. So much fruit can come out of that statement if we allow it. And there are multiple areas of application that can come out of that statement as well. Now there's more to say as far as context of this passage, but for now I want to read our text for this morning. So would you rise and stand with me? I'm just going to read the first six verses, but we will address the whole chapter. Haggai chapter 1. And this is what the good and perfect word says. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. You may be seated. So a little more context, around 18 years before this message, the remnant of the nation of Israel was commanded to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. It's really a wonderful, beautiful thing. They're in captivity, and here you still have God being very merciful. In Ezra chapter 1, I'm going to read the first four verses again to get a little background. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, and I can't stress to you how important that statement is right there. You see it oftentimes in the New Testament. These things happen in order to fulfill Scripture, right? God is always going to be true to his word. So it says, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with the free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Remember that it was because of their disobedience that they were in captivity in the first place. But God, again, being the gracious and merciful God that he is, is still showing them kindness, even in their oppression, due to their own disobedience. I think of the prayer of Habakkuk at the ending of his book in verse, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. And let's just say that God is clearly remembering mercy in his wrath, which is fully glorious and righteous. So the Lord stirred up the king's heart to send the captives back to their homeland and rebuild the Jewish temple. As we continue to look at the book of Ezra, you will see that they started very well and made a great deal of progress. There are around 50,000 captive people that were sent back. The king gave back all the gold and silver articles that were for the house of God that King Nebuchadnezzar took, and he gave it back to them. They got as far as building the altar, which was very important, because if they're going to worship God back then, they needed to have the sacrificial system. So they built the altar so that worship could be restored, and the foundation was built, so they were making a great deal of progress. But then, in the midst of their obedience, a trial came. Can we not relate to this in our lives? The Samaritans, who were a mixed race of both Jewish and Assyrian ancestry, wanted to join in and help. And that seemed somewhat innocent, but the problem was they did not worship the one true God. They worshipped bits of it, but they also worshipped all the other gods. And you cannot mix truth with error. They don't mix at all, right? And they're called the enemies of Israel. So because they refused to allow them to help, which was the right thing, the Samaritans responded by making false accusations towards them, to the king. And at that time, King Darius was no more, and now it was King Artaxerxes. Oh my goodness, Artaxerxes. The king heeded these false accusations, 
And then he made a decree that was able to be changed because if you understood the law, once a decree was made, it could not be changed, but he left a little thing there to make sure that he can investigate it in case he does have to change it. And so he looked into the issue further. And eventually he died, and then Darius became king, and Haggai gives his message, so that's where we're at. So I'm going to read it again, first six verses, and then we'll get into this. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Serubabel, son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. This people says, and that's not good when he calls his people this people, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. So what I want to say this morning is this. God determines the timing of when we are to follow through on his commandments. Now I want to say what this does not mean. Well, for starters, it does not mean that we wait for a convenient time. If this was the case, nothing would get done. As a matter of fact, if we are in tune with our fallen nature, there is never a time that it is convenient serving the Lord and following God. And the reason, again, as I always say, is the reality of remaining sin that is in our flesh. When God talks about the nature of our flesh in Galatians chapter 5, he says that it's in opposition to the Spirit. They don't agree ever, right? So this is a problem. So by nature, we want to do what we want to do, not what God wants us to do. Serving God is almost always a sacrifice, Sacrifice and convenience do not belong in the same category. They don't even belong in the same sentence. When Jesus was talking about the cost of discipleship, he said the following in Matthew 16, 24. It's a popular verse. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now let's look at that in light of our title for a moment. Many said they wanted to follow him, but our Lord is essentially saying, you need to consider the cost. It requires denial of yourself and dedication to this self-denial. My ways are higher than your ways and are in opposition to your ways. If you're going to do this, your life will be an inconvenience. And talking about holiness to the Corinthian church, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The very body, which is sinful. But the very body that we're called to keep it in subjection to the Spirit. God is very clear in Scripture that the natural works of the body are evil. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And I love this because... Normally, when I read Romans 12.1, I like to read the New King James. I think it's a better translation. But I actually like this one right now, if you have the NASB or the ESV. It says, this is your spiritual service of worship. We cannot worship God properly if we don't subject these sinful bodies and put them under the power of the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit's power so that we will not 
demonstrate the deeds of my flesh. I cannot worship God with my fleshly desires. So God is reminding his children that now that you are saved, you ought to operate your bodies differently. You are mine. I bought you. And if you're going to worship me, you can't if you do not deny the natural desires of your flesh and be a living sacrifice for my glory. This is what God says. There's nothing of convenience here. There is no convenience in sacrifice. Let's go back to what we've been looking at for a moment. Let's look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. What's the problem here? God already said that it was time, did he not? Many years ago. The problem was they were letting the circumstances of their life hinder their progress. The next thing is we need to understand is never let the circumstances of our life be an excuse to not follow God. We can come up with excuses so many times. We must remember that God was the one who allowed these adversaries to come to them. Is he not sovereign and in complete control? Life happens, does it not? But who is in control of our life? Now you might be saying, wait a minute, Mike. I know that I am dealing with something right now that is a direct result of my own actions. Actions have consequences. Even us who are under the mercy of God, actions sometimes have consequences. That is very true. There are self-inflicting consequences to our actions. But there are many of us, in fact, all of us, that do not deal with the effects of our actions all the time. In other words, God is merciful. And if we can't witness that in our lives, you are definitely being well too self-centered. We are being way too self-centered. God is sovereign. And whether we cause the problems in our life or whether the problems we have are there because God put them there for a reason, we are still required to trust and obey him. In this context, God specifically commanded the people of Israel through their captive ruler to go and rebuild the temple. They were captive because of their sin, consequences because of their sin. And God, being sovereign, was being gracious to them in their captivity. And, and it, was go, it was God who allowed the opposition that came, which led to them being in a difficult, very difficult situation. But current circumstances are never an excuse to disobey God. These people... The nation of Israel, they let the situation affect them in the negative rather than in the positive. How often do we let the circumstances in our lives determine our response to obey him? We have around 120 people or so in the sanctuary. And 120 people with their own circumstances of life. We have around 120 people with their own crosses to bear. And there are around 120 of us that have to ask ourselves, are we actually bearing our own crosses and truly following him? I can't answer that question for any of you guys. We have to stop and consider our ways and ask that to ourselves. But I can tell you this. Let me put the uh, point the finger at Mike for a moment. If I let the circumstances of my life determine my actions, I would not be here right now in this moment for this time preaching the word of God to you. Let me just bash Mike for a moment so we can have understanding. Mike is naturally a very, very, very selfish man who has no self-control, who has an incredible fear, and this is not an exaggeration, 
that Mike has an incredible fear of talking in front of big crowds. Mike is not a good speaker with good vocabulary, and he struggles to get the thoughts in his head together so that he can effectively communicate it. And he despises having to study for anything because he is not, if he's not interested in it, because he has no attention span. Or maybe Mike can rightfully say, I was up really early today and I worked really, really hard working a stressful job and I just want to have my time. I don't want to have family worship. I would rather just relax and have some Mike time. Knowing very clearly the commandment of God that I should train up my children in the ways of the Lord. Knowing very clearly that God has commanded me to, commanded me to wash my beautiful wife in the word of God. And knowing very clearly that I am called to bring my family together and pray, and pray and simply spend time with them. And not just them, but my church family. If Mike uses the circumstances in his life as an excuse to disobey, there may never be a right time to obey. Let's take a look at the prophet Moses for a moment. He was given the command to go and be the instrument that God would deliver the people from bondage in Egypt. But just like us, Moses struggled with looking at the situation at hand. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, this is what we read. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He's a fugitive to Egypt right now. But the first place he went wrong was that he was looking to himself rather than looking to God. In Exodus chapter 4, in verse 10, we read this. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now what is he doing? He's looking at his own track record up to, up to this point. He's being an empiricist. He's saying, Lord, my life has proven I can't do it. You know everything. I cannot do this. But let's look now back at how the Lord responds to him. Moses was looking to himself and his own ability in verse 11 of chapter 3. And then look what verse 12 says. Here's God's response. And he said, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. Now notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, no, Moses, you have the ability. You can do this. He doesn't say that. That didn't matter. God essentially is saying, so what? More to my glory. After all, it's about my glory, Moses, and my ability. Don't worry, I will be with you. Is that not enough that the Lord is on our side? Then in chapter 4, Verse 10, Moses looked at the experiences of his life. And by that, he ruled himself out. Exodus 4.11, look what the Lord said. Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He's in control of all those things. Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. So God is saying, it's not about you, Moses, but it's about me and my power. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. We know that from Corinthians. But why these verses here, brothers and sisters? I love this in Romans 15.4. We can't forget this. For whatever was written in earlier times, the Old Testament, 
was written for our instruction, the church, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, confidence in what God says. What he says is true. Now, if we look again at the current situation, there's another thing that we must take from this. We can look at this passage of Scripture, along with Ezra and Zechariah, and assume that the Jews were just shaking their fists at God in complete defiance. And some people would take that approach. I can tell you right now, I do not take that approach. I do not think that this was in their heart at all. Were they wrong? Absolutely, they were wrong in what they did. But we need to be a little understanding and human. Even God, who is holy, can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our frame. He knows that we are just jars of clay. I do not think this was the case. Maybe I'm wrong. Because I know that they together obeyed, and they together, by God's power, made a great deal of progress until opposition came. Now, should they have continued? Of course. Was it sinful? Yes. But there's another dangerous thing that we need to be aware of and reminded of. That is, beware of the danger of rationalizing. How often do we do this as the church? I don't think they were shaking their fist at God. I think they were just being human and getting distracted by the circumstances. Now, we already said that this should not stop us, but we have the tendency to rationalize the situation, convincing ourselves that what is happening demands a different response than what God demands. And we've convinced ourselves that this is okay, even though it's not okay. And we convince ourselves by rationalizing that disobeying is actually okay. In other words... I know you said this, Lord, but, blah, 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 the but gods. God understands if we stop. He knows what's happening, and we will just get to it later. That's the mindset. This situation must be a sign from God. This is why we have to be careful when we start looking for signs. First of all, We're not guaranteed later, are we? And second, God's commandments are to be immediately obeyed. Delayed obedience, which is better than no obedience at all, is still disobedience because if you delayed, that means you didn't do it. That means you disobeyed. How many times do we say this to our children? I'm going to give you three chances, but why are we giving them three chances? Well, we're being merciful, I get it. Most of the time, they're going to use all those three, right? We want them to obey now. Because of this, I must now do this, even if God didn't tell me to do it. That's their mindset. So when they're rationalizing, they said it must not be the time, even though God said it was clearly the time. And God was disappointed. God was angry. But God's anger is not like ours, thank God. It is holy and it's righteous. He's angry with the wicked every day. But he is also merciful and he is understanding. His response, now in verse 3 and 4, was a response that provoked them to think. God wants us always to think. Let's look at verse 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate. Tough words. They knew the answer to this question. It's somewhat rhetorical. So apparently, they were making their own houses look pretty while the house of the Lord was not even fully built. It was actually in ruins. And the meaning of the term paneled houses can have two potential meanings. It can be an actual roof, Or the second meeting, which I think fits the context, which is an elaborate waincoating type of covering, which was typical of the wealthy people back then. Their houses were made out of stone. Either way, they both work, though I would give more weight to the latter use of it. The economic times were not good and have not been good for some time, as we're going to see. 
Most likely, they were using the wood that was collected for the sanctuary for their own homes. And there's evidence of that as we continue to read. Again, rationalizing that they would get to it later, God understands. And I really believe they meant that. We'll get to it later. How many times do we say that? How many times do we say, I'm going to call that person later or whatever, and then we forget. Days go by, months go by, years go by. How did we get here? You had good intentions, but you didn't do it. Now, so we don't misunderstand what Haggai is saying. He is not saying that there is anything wrong with them putting extra wood and paneling on their houses. It's not wrong for them to have nice things. But it was wrong that their things were going before him. And especially that they were things that were not a necessity. Let's continue, verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put them into a purse with holes. So God lets them understand that they should have understood the whole, what they should have understood the whole time. But they became blinded by their own sin. And sin does this, does it not? Sin will always take you further than you want to go. And it will always take you further than you think you will go. That won't ever happen to me. I can't tell you how many times I said that as a young Christian. I won't do that. Eh. Bad company corrupts but good morals. I did it. Right? It was foolish in the Old Testament and it's foolish in the New Testament. And these Israelites had a rich history to remind them about all that God commands them. Now, there are two passages that I want want to read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And both these chapters tell us about the blessings of obedience and the penalties for disobedience. So I believe we will do very well to pay attention to these words. Let's look at it. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 18 to 20. I'll read it. It says, If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. Deuteronomy 28, verse 38 to 40. You shall bring out much seed, as they were doing, to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locusts will come and consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you will not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives will drop off. So God is saying that these things will happen when you disobey me and when you forget me. So here's a question. Who is in charge of the fruit of their labors? Kind of a trick question if you really look at it. In one sense, there's two answers to this question. In one sense, God is in control of everything. We know that, right? He is sovereign. Ultimately, whatever's going to happen is what God says is going to happen. But there is another sense, the human, if you will, where we are. As a general rule, the one who works hard and follows the rules will have success. That's true in the body of Christ. That's true even in the secular world. It's just a basic principle. We see this in different ways throughout Scripture, whether they are general rules. When I say by general rules, I'm not saying that meaning that it's, it's not, God's not talking about a guarantee, it's just a general rule, or if he's talking in absolute guarantees. Oftentimes we see this in the if-then clauses of Scripture. If you do this, then this, right? Let's look at a few. Proverbs 22, 6. 
Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, here's an example of a general rule. Not necessarily a guarantee because things happen. God is in control. There's a reason. But I can't tell you how many people will complain about maybe the, where their kids are, but they've never trained up the child in the way that he should go. They completely disobeyed this beautiful command. And this is now what's happening. Now, there's examples that you can train them up and listen, things still happen. We get that. How about Joshua chapter 1? I love this, verse 6 to 9. The mantle's been given to him now. Moses is dead. God says this, Be strong and courageous, for you you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I believe this is an example of a guarantee that if you do those things, those things will in fact happen. Here's another one. Honor the Lord. Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first fruit of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The problem is when we look at these these verses is that mankind will not ever do this. Or certainly we're not ever going to do this perfectly. One of the purposes of God's law, it certainly shows his character, but it's to show us our need for a savior, our need for righteousness, because we're not going to fully obey it. But even with the Savior, and that is us here as a church, these things apply. Think of John 15, just for a moment. Abide in me. This speaks of the benefits that come to the church when they abide in Christ, such as answered prayer. And that whole passage in John 15, in verse 5, Jesus says, apart from me, talking to the church, who have the Holy Spirit, he says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So let's not be foolish. Let's continue this, verse 7 in our passage. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Again, that phrase. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. Now it's interesting, because if you look at Ezra, when he first gave the command to go back and build, It took them a couple weeks to go and prepare and get the wood before they actually went to go build. And now there's no more wood. Where did that wood go? Went on their houses. It says, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, said the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Because you did this, This is now what I'm going to do. I said it before. I'm true to my word. This is what happens. Now, there are so many things that I can say at this moment. There may be so many thoughts going through our heads as we personally meditate on these words. I do not know where everyone else is this morning, but I think it is a good time to say, have we considered our ways? This morning. And I say we because I'm not preaching at you. 
I'm preaching to myself first. Do we find ourselves in a similar situation as the nation of Israel? Look at your own context. Look at your own selves. Maybe we have some heart-checking to do. If we be honest, even for those of you that are more mature, and maybe further along on this journey, we all have some heart-checking to do. We should be constantly checking our heart. This is part of our sanctification by the Spirit. Here are some just more verses that I think might help us. I'm just going to read a few of them. Malachi 3.8 Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. That's not a zinger. Let's talk about giving here. Just trying to make a point. Okay? Because you guess what? Someone's paycheck does kind of say a lot about their heart. I don't know who's being faithful to this or or not, but are we honoring God with the first fruits of our increase? That's to all of us. This next verse stands in complete contrast to where Israel was in our passage. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, concerning King David. It says that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells with tent curtains, within tent curtains. Total contrast. David, living in luxury, and yet he was a man after God's own heart. He was a sinner. He can sin as good as the best, right? But he was broken from his sin. He's living the life of luxury. He's a king, and he sees the tabernacle, and he doesn't understand it. And we know that he didn't build it, but Solomon eventually did. And now, in contrast, you have these people commanded to go build the house of the Lord, but instead, a little situation happened, and then they stop. Not good. Search our hearts. God doesn't care about material things for his sanctuary. His sanctuary is in the hearts of his children. But the heart behind this is, are we keeping the best for ourselves and giving God the leftovers? Or are we going to give God the best? Because he wants the best. Then this next verse speaks a lot on contentment. Scripture tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. Proverbs fifteen sixteen: Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. You guys can do with those verses what God has shown you to do, but I think... They're somewhat helpful. Let's finish the text. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord. Amen. The Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the apostle showed reverence, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, just like he said to Moses. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So we see somewhat of a good ending here, at least up to this point. And one of the reasons for this was their unity in obeying. The scripture is clear that all the remnant obeyed, and because of it, the Lord was with them. What a wonderful God who is infinitely kind and infinitely merciful to his people. You know, no people on earth, church, can truly grasp God's grace, his kindness, his mercy, forgiveness, and his love more than us, the church. Much, much has been given to us. What are we doing in response to this? Our salvation, 
is not for us, but it's for him and his glory. You are only alive today. You are only here this morning to bring him glory. And that happens the same way it's always happened since the beginning of time, by trusting him and obeying him. Now, I'd said something in the beginning. I said that God determines the timing of when we are to follow through on his commandments. And we went a little bit of what this does not mean or what this does not look like. Now I want to tell you what that does mean. I actually answered it, if you were paying attention. There's only one answer to this question, and the answer again is now. Now is time to obey. It's never to be delayed. Though if it is, there is still time to repent and obey. I want to use this verse in Hebrews chapter 3.15. I wasn't going to use it because there is somewhat of a context there, and I didn't want to take anything out of context because that's not good. But I think we're fine. Hebrews 3.15, I want to read it. This is what it says. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Now here, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the danger of unbelief. And it's interesting because disobedience oftentimes stems from unbelief. Now he's referring back to the Old Testament, but reminding the church, that's what this book is written to, the church of something very important. We stand by faith, believing in the person and work of Christ, and that faith is not absent of obedience. We know that. In the Old Testament, this quote from Psalms can be salvific, but the expectation of obedience is still present for the church today, is it not? No one was ever saved by works, whether it was in the Old Testament or whether in the New Testament. But God always expects his people to obey him. We sing that song, Trust and Obey, because we know he expects us to live in obedience. So now, church, is the time to obey. Can we not, as the church, quench the spirit as Scripture tells us? Of course we could. We can't quench something that we don't have. We have the spirit. The spirit of God provokes us to obey, never to disobey. We do that very easily under our own power. So if you have ears to hear this morning, will you obey? Will we obey. Now maybe you're lost and in need of salvation this morning. Then scripture has a sense of immediacy for you as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, for he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Will you repent and believe today if you have not? And now there is one more thing I want to share, and then we'll close. What can we learn about Christ in this message? In this passage in Haggai, we had a prophet, we had a priest, and we had a king. He was governor, but he was the ruler under the tribe of Judah. And they were examples of good ones. And their unity and obedience led to a good result. These three men, in a sense, are kind of like a type of Christ who holds all three offices. I want you to listen to what Michael Bentley says on this. He says, It would appear that the governor and the high priest were godly men who were seeking to carry out the task laid upon them, but that they were affected by the, the lethargy that had fallen upon the whole of Judah. However, he says, when Haggai joined them, things began to happen. Have you noticed what we have in verse 1? We have a prophet, the high priest, and the governor, or ruler, all considering the word of the Lord. When these three combined, it is not understandable that there should be a change for the better. Does this not remind you of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ? He is prophet, priest, and king. 
His word must be obeyed in the minutest detail. No wonder that we read the word of the Lord came. After more than a dozen years of reluctance to upset those who were opposing the work, God speaks. Then a dramatic improvement comes about. End quote. And brothers and sisters, can we not witness the dramatic improvement of our lives now that we are in Christ Jesus? Especially for maybe some of you guys that got saved later in life. You know the dramatic improvement that Christ brought to your lives. We were dead and we were raised to life. We were blind and now we see. We were deaf and now we hear. We could not understand the word of God and now we can because we have the spirit. Are we too busy for him? Ask ourselves that question. Are we rationalizing? Time is of essence. We do not know if we have time in the future. We have been given amazing grace. We have been given amazing, unconditional forgiveness as far as the east is to the west, even though that's my left hand. Bear with me. And we have been given empowerment to obey. We have the Spirit, and the Spirit's job is to provoke us to obedience. Are we listening to the Spirit? So let us be who God made us to be for his glory and no one else's. Amen? Let's pray. God, forgive us of our sins. If we be honest, at times there are many. But your forgiveness never stops. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Lord. Help us to make you Lord better than we do. Father, thank you so much for your perfect word. Help, it, help, it, help us, Lord God, to, to obey it. I pray that we would leave here this morning heart-checking ourselves, truly considering our ways. And the whole purpose of that is because we should never be satisfied, Lord. We want to always know you more. We want to be better servants of you. We don't want to be satisfied. We want to be who you called us to be and nothing less. So help us this morning to be able to do that. And we know we have strength from your spirit to do that. And we know we thank you for this, Lord God, because you're an amazing God and we love you. So be with us for the remainder of the week, for the remainder of the day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you all to stand. As we close in doxology, as we sing, praise the Lord. For his word preached. Let us sing to him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. God bless you all.